would you tell me that I'm a horrible human being? Would you tell me that I'm a bad father? If you were my friend, you wouldn't tell me those things. But I used to tell those things to myself all the time until I learned this research about the importance of self-compassion. So, so talking to yourself like a good friend, that, that is the ultimate hack to self-compassion, to when you screw up. And by the way, we all mess up on the path to becoming indistractable. I spent five years writing this book, and uh, I still struggle with distraction. But here's the difference. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. Now, majority of us are going out there and we're hustling. We want to optimize every second, every moment of our day to really be able to scale our businesses, our life, and everything like that. And we probably have tried a lot of optimization tools and productivity tools and habit tools and all sorts of things. And we try to integrate that for a little while, and then all of a sudden we just fall off the bike for some reason. Well, have you ever asked yourself, what is the root cause of that distraction? Why do we keep getting distracted? Why are we not implementing this on a consistent basis or become so habitual where you don't even think about it? Well, you ask yourself this, and that's the reason why I have this next guest on. He's talking about, well, why we escape our discomfort and why that comes from and where we're going to go into that a little bit. So we're, we're so excited about having this guest on. He's the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He's an active investor. He's put in his uh, backed habit-forming products like Eventbrite, Kahoot, Anchor.fm, which was acquired by Spotify, Refresh.io, acquired by LinkedIn, and so many other different uh, investing uh, businesses. He has also taught at the Lecture in Marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Design School. He sold two companies, technology companies, since 2003, and now he has got his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only, Nir Ayal. How are you doing today, Nir? Great. Great to be with you, Christian. Hey, man. Really excited about diving into this because like I mentioned, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you really talk very in depth about like indistractable. Okay. How to control your attention, choose your life. And what I found so interesting is you were mentioning how you don't talk about just like putting band-aids on it. Like, hey, try this new technique, try this new tactic, try this new whatever. You talk really getting down to the next level and ask yourself, okay, what is the root cause of this distraction? Before we dive into that and the methodology, um, I'd like to ask you, at what point in your journey did you start realizing that that was the question you had to be asking? So for me, it was a very specific moment in time. I, uh, I had this beautiful afternoon planned with my daughter, uh, just some quality daddy-daughter time. And I remember we had this book of activities that dads and daughters could do together. And they included all kinds of fun things, you know, uh, have a paper airplane flying contest, uh, do a Sudoku puzzle. And one of the activities in this book was to ask each other this question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter says. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I don't even know why, I thought it was a good idea to just check my phone for one quick sec 
And by the time I looked up for my device, she was gone and I'd blown it. She realized that I was sending her a very clear signal that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And so she decided to go play with some toy uh, in the other room. And so that's when I realized that, you know, I really had to reassess my own relationship with distraction. And it wasn't just with my daughter and it wasn't just with my phone. It would happen when I would tell myself, okay, I definitely need to start eating right, but I wouldn't. I definitely need to start exercise, but I didn't. It would happen when I would sit down at work and say, okay, I've got to focus on that big project. I need to finish this uh, this thing I said I was going to do. Here I go. I'm going to get started. But 20, 30, 45 minutes later, I was doing everything but that big project that I said I was going to work on. And so that's when I really you know, ask myself, okay, how, how do I get past this? And, and why is this impeding so many different areas of my life? And so if you ask me today, what skill I think is most important, what superpower I would want, it's the power to be indistractable. Because if you think about it, there is no area of your life, your physical health, your mental health, your relationships, your work, everything is affected by your ability to control your attention and control your time. This is truly how we choose our life. And if you don't have control over those two things, your time and your attention, you can't have control over your life. And so everything, you know, all the tips, the tricks, the apps, the hacks, none of that works if you don't understand how to get out of your own way. That is the biggest problem. The biggest problem today is not that we don't know what to do, right? We're always looking for gurus and books and workshops to tell us what to do. We know what to do, folks. <laughs> if you don't know what to do, Google it. Right? Who doesn't know that if you want to get in shape, you got to eat right and exercise? A anybody not know that? <laughs> Does anybody not know that if you want to do better at your job, you've got to do the hard work, especially the stuff that other people don't want to do? It it Does anybody not know that if you want to have good relationships, you have to be fully present with the people that you care most about? We all know this stuff. The problem is that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting distracted. We don't know how to stop getting in our own way. And how amazing would it be if you just did what you said you were going to do, right? That was my problem. I knew what to do. I just didn't do it. I didn't follow through. And so that's when I decided I really need to figure this out. And so I started on this journey. First, I read a bunch of books on the topic. And frankly, they all sucked because they all kind of said the same thing. Technology is the problem. Technology is evil. And I tried that. I tried getting rid of my technology. I, I got a flip phone from Alibaba, you know, one of those like things we used to use back in the 1990s. And uh, I, I got a word processor from uh, from eBay. Like there had been, uh, you know, nobody had, nobody had made these kind of things for a decade. But I started I started you know using these products, thinking technology was the problem. I'll get rid of the internet. I'll get rid of the apps, and it didn't work. You know why it didn't work? Because I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I've got no distractions, no no technology. I'll get started. Here I go. But oh, you know what? There's there's that book on the bookshelf, or let me take out the trash real quick, or or or, or let me just um go don't do the laundry, okay? That that needs to be done. Let me just go do those things real quick. Or worst of all, let me just check email for a quick second, right? That's a work related task. I'm being productive. Well, those things kept taking me off track, and so what I uh, what I realized is that distraction is not just about technology. It goes way way deeper than the technology. It's much more interesting, uh, much more empowering, and I think much more honest to look at the psychology of distraction rather than just blaming the tools that we happen to be using in this day and age. You know, and I, I am so guilty of this. And so that's why I think it's so interesting because like you mentioned, once you actually take, you know, we, we justify, we blame, oh, it's this device, it's the electronics, but the reality is it's really not being able to control this. So let's kind of dive into the psychology of it. You mentioned, and the, the questions we always should be asking is like, root, what is the root cause of that distraction? So let's right. dive into that. I would love for you to unpack that a little bit for our audience so we can understand kind of what you're looking at. And so we can become aware of the red flags and the green flags within ourselves. 
Sure. So, so starting with the fact that distraction is nothing new, right? We like to think it's something that uh, came about because of the internet or Facebook or your iPhone. No, 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 no. Uh, we know that Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years ago talked about the problem of distraction. He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. And so if people were complaining about distraction 2,500 years ago. The cause can't be technology. It has to go deeper. And this is something humans have always struggled with. So the best place to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. If you ask people, what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you it's focus. Okay, I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused, but that's not true. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction, it's not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, right? So uh, things that, that move you closer to your values, help you become the kind of person you want to become, acts with intention, those are acts of traction. The opposite, distraction, is any action that pulls you further away from your goals, further away from your objectives, further away from living the kind of life you want and being the kind of person you want to become. So this is the first place we start. We have traction and we have distraction. So think about them like two arrows pointing in opposite directions. Okay. Now, what prompts us to traction and distraction are triggers. And there are two kinds of triggers. We have external triggers. These are all the pings, the dings, the rings, everything in our outside environment that leads us towards traction and distraction. And this is what we tend to blame, right? It's, uh, it's our phones, it's our computers, it's our kids, it's our boss, the things outside of us, okay? External triggers. Studies find, however, that external triggers are only the source of about 10% of our distractions, 10%, okay? What's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time we get distracted, we get distracted not because of an external trigger, not because of something outside of us, but rather what I was alarmed to find in my 10 years of research is that distraction almost always begins from within. These are called internal triggers and they are the source of 90% of our distractions. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states. Loneliness, boredom, anxiety, uncertainty, stress. These uncomfortable sensations lead us to look for relief from those uncomfortable sensations very often with a distraction, okay? So distraction is always a desire to escape discomfort. It's very, very important insight. I don't care if it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you are always going to get distracted from one thing or another if you don't understand why you are looking to escape this uncomfortable sensation, okay? You have to understand the root cause. And the root cause of 90% of our distractions are these internal triggers. So the first step to becoming indistractable is to master those internal triggers because if you don't, they will become your masters. So let's talk a little bit about this a little bit uh, in more depth. You mentioned loneliness, boredom, stress, uncertainty, anxiety, a few others as well. Now you mentioned, because like you mentioned, when we experience that, then that's becomes discomfort. So then we naturally, whether it's a subconscious or a conscious program, we go and, and find something to distract ourselves with that. So let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Let's take, you know, boredom or stress, for example. Um, what can we do to, first of all, be aware of that consciously so that that subconscious program is not running and so that we can obviously kind of, um, you know, hit that in the butt so that we can build the right habit in that. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is super important, right? So let's back up a step and talk about what is motivation, 
right? Why, why are we, why do we do things that we know we shouldn't do, right? We, we know we should exercise. We know we should eat right. We know we should uh, put down the cell phone and be with our kids or work on the big project when we don't feel like it. Well, you know, you, we know to do this stuff. Why don't we feel motivated to do it? Well, the, the reason is, is because motivation is not what most people think. Most people think motivation is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Sigmund Freud said this, Jeremy Bentham said this, it's called the pleasure principle, but it ain't true. It's not true. Neurologically speaking, we do not do what we do for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Neurologically speaking, everything we do, we do for only one reason, one reason, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do is done out of the desire to escape discomfort, even desiring to feel good. Pleasurable sensations, wanting, craving, lusting are themselves psychologically destabilizing. Right? The brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. The memory of striving to feel something. Okay, It's still about emotion modulation. That's what the brain wants. So what does that mean? If all human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. Okay, If you have a pen and paper, write that down. Time management is pain management. I would add weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management because all human behavior is about the, about the desire to escape discomfort. I didn't make this up. Neural, a neuroscience now proves this correct. This is a very Buddhist mentality, right? It's all about suffering. It's about ma main, uh, 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 maintaining this, this struggle with this, it, this, these uncomfortable sensations that are part of the human experience. So that means if we are not going to be slaves to these uncomfortable sensations, we have to learn how to master them. How do you do that? So there's a dozen different techniques I talk about in Indistractable in my book, uh, but let me give you just a couple that I think are, are very, very helpful. One technique, and this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. So everything in my book, by the way, I cite a lot of studies in the book. There's over 30 pages of citations because I don't want to be one of these self-help books that's, hey, here's my personal pet philosophy. I think it's true, so you should too. I hate those kind of books. Not only does it have to be practical and effective, these techniques have to be packed by peer-reviewed studies. So acceptance and commitment therapy is, has this well-studied technique that's called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule works like this. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, okay? Whether it's your cell phone, whether it's that piece of chocolate cake, whether it's uh, the cigarette you're trying to quit smoking, whatever the case might be, you can give in to any distraction, but not right now, in 10 minutes, okay? Not for 10 minutes, <laughs> in 10 minutes. So many times, you know, I, I'm a professional writer and so I write every day. And many times while I'm writing, all I wanna do is Google something or check email, or do anything but the thing I'm working on right now because it's hard work. I want to escape the discomfort of all these internal triggers of, is what I'm writing any good? Are people going to like it? Uh, what, what if nobody reads it? What if it doesn't lead anywhere? What if it's boring? Right? I have all these internal triggers bouncing around my head. So all I want to do is go escape them by checking email or Googling something or whatever. But instead, what I do is I say, okay, let me, I can do those things. Okay, I'm a grown adult. I can do anything I want. I can do those things. But in 10 minutes, in 10 minutes, so I'll set a timer on my phone, I'll put it down, now I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand, or I need to do what psychologists call surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these uncomfortable sensations, these internal triggers, they crest and they subside. But that's not the way most people think about these sensations. When we feel mad, we think we're always going to be mad. When we're bored, we're always going to be bored. When we're stressed, we feel like we're always going to be stressed. But of course, these sensations are transient. They're like waves, right? So if you can ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard, you can surf that urge for just a few minutes. And I tell you the script to talk in your own head as you're surfing the urge. And what you will find is nine times out of 10, 
when the alarm goes off for those 10 minutes and now you can give into that distraction, the urge is gone. Nine times out of 10, you'll be back at the task at hand. So it's a very, very effective technique. Anybody can use it starting today, right? You know this technique now. Now there's a lot of other techniques you can use. We've only talked about one part of the indistractable model. There's a lot more as well, but that's just one of about a dozen different techniques that anyone can start using. You know, and that's so interesting. Like you mentioned, we anticipate, it's not saying, hey, you're not acknowledging it's not that you're totally ignoring that feeling. You're acknowledging that and saying, hey, I'm going to you know, embrace that in 10 minutes though. And so just putting that structure and I really like that. Now I wanna ask you in regards to you know, implementing kind of limiting beliefs or like how does limiting beliefs integrate into this kind of indistractable process a little bit? Because like you mentioned, I think yeah. sometimes when we look at, and maybe this just might be me, but when we look at a big project, it's this limiting belief that we may have, oh, I don't want to do it because it's, you know, just like you mentioned, all these deflating thoughts and processes and these triggers in our head that are causing us. And so those are limiting beliefs to some, some extent. So I'm just curious, yeah. how, how, how does limiting beliefs kind of integrate with this, this methodology, if you will? Yeah, no, this is, this is a super important point uh, because there's so much bad common wisdom out there that just ain't true. And much of it, unfortunately, came out of the psychology community. So there's this, uh, there's be this belief in what uh, psychologists call ego depletion. Even if you don't know what ego depletion is, you've probably experienced it. Ego depletion says that willpower is a limited resource. Okay, that you run out of willpower. And there was a, a psychologist, a pretty prominent psychologist that perpetuated this idea that, hey, look, willpower is like uh, a charge in a battery, right? Or gas in a gas tank, you run out of willpower. And I used to think this was true for a very long time. I didn't know what it was called, but you know, I'd come home from work after a long day and I would say, I feel spent, right? Uh, and so what do I deserve when I'm spent? Well, uh, no, I don't have any more willpower. I can't tell myself no anymore. So give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch some Netflix, right? Because I, I have no willpower left. And then some, a group of researchers, you know, whenever we in the social sciences find that a study sounds too good to be true, it sounds a little fishy, what do we do? We try and replicate the study. We rerun it. And it turns out what we now know that uh, willpower, this idea that, that willpower is a depletable resource, just ain't true. Doesn't look like the original psychologist studies replicate. We don't know why they don't replicate, but it turns out study after study show that, that ego depletion, this idea that willpower is a limited resource, just ain't true. It does not exist. It's a myth, except in one group of people. There is one group of people who really do run out of willpower, just like if it was a charge in a, in a battery. And those people, and only those people, are people who believe that willpower is a limited resource. That's it. It's the only people it affects. So why do I tell this story? So this answers your question around self-image, right? And how we view our own temperament. And so we hear this all the time. We hear people saying, oh, I'm so OCD or I'm so ADHD, even when they haven't gotten an actual diagnosis. I'm no good with time management. Uh, I have an addictive personality. I'm a Sagittarius. I'm a not, not a night, I'm a, not a morning person. I, you know, so many limiting self, uh, so many beliefs that we lop onto ourselves, that we attach to ourselves that really hurt us. So what we need to do instead is to adopt self-images that serve us rather than hurt us. And so the self-image I want you to adopt is that you are indistractable. I made up this word, indistractable, because it sounds like indestructible. And so as opposed to plopping on a, 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 a self-limiting belief, some kind of identity that I'm no good at time management, or I have an addictive personality, or I have undiagnosed ADHD, or whatever it might be, as opposed to adopting a label, which really doesn't serve you most of the time, because of course... We all know Henry Ford, who said, 
that whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. Think about that for a minute. Whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. Just like those people in that study who believe that willpower was limited resource ran out of willpower. <laughs> so if you believe you are something, you're likely to act in accordance with it. So don't believe you're no good at time management. Believe that you are indistractable. You can use that as your personal moniker. That is who you are. Now, this I, I love because you mentioned this in other interviews in regards to the identity a little bit. And so, you know, when even because, I mean, boredom, stress, uncertainty, anxiety, right? What I've noticed is, and, and anxiety is, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a tough little situation itself. Um, but outside of that, you know, like you were mentioning, when you start realizing, hey, I'm an anxious person, I'm always anxious, I'm whatever, right? We start kind of feeding that into ourselves. So then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Same thing That's with, right. well, whenever I'm bored, I'm always going to do this, right? And, you know, just personally, or, I- Or let I, me just, let me add real please. quick. Also, this idea that technology is addicting us. It's a terribly dangerous idea. You hear people say technology is hijacking our brains. Shut up. What hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11, right? Hijacking is not, ooh, I like checking Instagram. Give me a break, right? That's disrespectful. That is not even appropriate. It's not, it's these tools are not addicting everybody. Right? We say, oh, they're addictive. Well, yes, some people get addicted, just like some people get addicted to alcohol, right? Alcohol is way more addictive, I promise you, than anything that's on your phone. But is everybody who has a glass of wine with dinner an alcoholic? Of course not, <laughs> right? So why do we think that somehow everybody who has, uses social media or whatever technology is addicted? They're only addicted if they think they are. Now, some people do have the medical condition, right? There is such a thing as the pathology of addiction. It's about 3% of the population. Some people do have it. There's 97% chance that ain't you. So don't have that perception that somehow, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, right? What happens when we tell people that technology is hijacking their brains, that it's addictive, there's nothing they can do about it. Guess what they do? Nothing. So don't believe this lie. I think perpetuated by the tech companies. I think the tech companies want you to believe you're addicted, right? Because that makes you more likely to not try and moderate your use. Don't buy that BS from these tech critics that you know run around saying technology is so bad. We can use technology. It's a wonderful tool. It helps us connect with people. It helps us live richer, uh, uh, better lives. But as long as we use it and don't let it use us. You're saying some really powerful stuff. And I, I think there's a so much val validation behind that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about and looping into meditation a little bit, because you and I, we've known, well, hey, if you meditate and visualize yourself being indistractable, right, then all of a sudden it becomes your identity of who you are. So sometimes it has to be internal here. So I love to ask, you know, how important is that on this scale of, of, of integrating this into this, uh, this path? Meditation specifically? Yes. Mm -hmm. Not very, <laughs> not very. And I'll tell you why, because meditation has been shown to have many, many benefits. Primarily those, it, when we look at the research literature, the benefits are that it makes you a better meditator. And I know that's gonna take a lot of people by surprise. And it's, it's great, if you enjoy meditation, do it. But we have to also acknowledge that meditation doesn't exist, it doesn't work for everyone. Some people don't respond positively to it. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily generalize to all areas of your life. And so if meditation works, if meditation helps you uh, uh, be more aware of, of your bodily sensation, that's I think what the biggest benefit of, of meditation is. It helps you become aware of the fact that you don't have to believe everything you think or feel. That's the most powerful thing about meditation is that that opening, that awareness that you don't have, you are not your thoughts, the little chatter in your voice that says those terrible things all day long. I know you and I both hear them, that you don't have to listen to that little voice. You can you can moderate that and just say it's it's it, it, it means nothing. It's just passing chatter. That's what meditation is really good for. 
but I would argue it's not enough. And I think a lot of folks, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think a lot of people pedal meditation as the solution for everything. And I just don't want people who maybe have tried meditation and it didn't work for them uh, to think that there's something broken or wrong with them. Meditation isn't for everyone. And that's why we have to use these multiple techniques in concert. And I, I want you to know, I look through hundreds of different techniques around how to sustain our attention and be fully present. And most of them I did not include <laughs> because there wasn't great evidence for it uh, uh, in the research literature. Again, I'm very much about the research literature. And the hardest part about what I did writing this book was to, to, to file down to the most impactful techniques, the things that have the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to the time and effort you put into these techniques to make you indistractable. This is interesting. I really appreciate you bringing that up because I, I like that. I like that unorthodox thought process in regards to meditation and also making sure that you, when you're integrating these thought, these, these, these indistractable processes, Hey, that's okay. You don't need this to be able to, you know, be able to achieve indistractable, uh, indistractable identity, if you will. Um, so let me ask you this because I want to loop back around in regards to that, that, that story of, of when this started becoming aware, like you, you had your daughter and boom, all of a sudden you became distracted. And that was your own flaw a little bit. And, and I appreciate you being authentic and sharing that. My question is, I think everything is a journey, right? Where there's always rooms to, room to optimize and adjust and keep pushing forward. And you know, one of those things is how do we give ourselves grace during that time? And maybe just even mm. talk about your story a little bit in regards to, hey, you know what? I messed up in this, but hey, how am I going to? And you mentioned this the reflection aspect, right? Getting yourself and, hey, what does this look like? But also, hey, how can I make sure that when, when I do fail, then how do I optimize this? And really, you know, that reflection, how to optimize even the reflections, uh, period. Yeah, so uh, we know that one of the most uh, helpful things that you can do is to learn self-compassion. That we know that people who are more self-compassionate are much more likely to reach their long-term goals. And the good news is that cultivating self-compassion is actually pretty easy. Uh, we talk to ourselves the way we talk to a good friend. That most of us, when we talk to ourselves, we talk to ourselves like a bully. <laughs> and that's what I used to do, right? Uh, but if you were my friend, and I told you this story about what happened to my, uh, my, when I was with my daughter, would you tell me that I'm a horrible human being? Would you tell me that I'm a bad father? If you were my friend, you wouldn't tell me those things, but I used to tell those things to myself all the time until I learned this research about the importance of self-compassion. So, so talking to yourself like a good friend, that, that is the ultimate hack to self-compassion, to when you screw up. And by the way, we all mess up on the path to becoming indistractable. I spent five years writing this book and uh, I still struggle with distraction, but here's the difference. An indistractable person doesn't never, is not a person who never gets distracted. That's not what being indistractable means. Being indistractable means you understand why you got distracted so you can do something about it next time. Puelo Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So good, I'm gonna say it again. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Distractible people keep getting distracted by the same things again and again. How many times can we blame our phones for God's sakes? Okay, you know your phone's distracting, right? Like, surprise, we know. What are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna keep getting distracted? Are you gonna make a decision to be a distractible person by allowing it to continue to distract you again and again and again? Or do you stand up and say, no, I know why I got distracted now, right? That's what the four parts of the indistractable model are all about. We talked about one of them. When you understand how you got distracted, why you got distracted, you can say, hey, okay, you did it to me once distraction, but you're not gonna do it to me again because I know every distraction only has one of three causes. 
an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. There's only three potential causes for every single distraction in your life. So an indistractable person says, no, you're not going to get me again distraction. I'm going to take steps today to prevent getting distracted again tomorrow. So let's talk a little bit about that. What have you found? Because it's like building boundaries and processes and systems around you so that you can focus on the higher leverage activities. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, when, when you're in that state of, okay, hey, you know what? I've, I'm going to optimize this. Okay. I failed in this circumstance. I'm going to have low, uh, you know, self-compassion. Cool. But now how do I sit there and say, hey, what can I unpack? How do I optimize it? How do I make sure I put the boundaries and systems? Because like you mentioned, I love what you said, is if you hit the same spot, the same thing, now it becomes a decision. Right. And now you're deciding to do X, Y, Z when you know you don't want to. So making sure you build the right boundaries and systems in place to prevent yeah. yourself from getting tempted in that direction. So let me unpack that for us. Sure. So step number one, we talked about very briefly, we talked about one technique. There's over a dozen different things that you can do to master the internal triggers. And the big idea here is that knowing that that is the source of our distractions, I want everyone to have arrows in their quiver, ready to go, tools in their toolbox, ready to go so that when you feel the boredom, when you feel the anxiety, when you feel the stress, you know what to do with that discomfort. What I found in my studies of, for this book is that high performers experience the exact same internal triggers as the low performers. We all experience the same anxiety, tension, uncertainty. We all experience these sensations. The difference is that the high performers know what to do with that discomfort. And they, in fact, use it as rocket fuel to propel them forward towards traction, as opposed to what most people do is they use that discomfort and they have to escape it. They have to escape it with the news. They have to escape it with a drink. They have to escape it with the television. They have to escape it with Facebook, with email, with whatever to get out of that discomfort, to not feel it. The idea instead is to use that discomfort to propel you forward. And so it's, it's a lot there, but that's, it's, it's in that chapter of the book about, about mastering internal triggers. Step number two, in terms of processes that you asked about, step number two to becoming indistractable is to make time for traction, right? We talked about the difference between traction and distraction. The problem is that the vast majority of people don't plan their time. And this is a huge, huge mistake. Why? Because you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So you can't say you got distracted from something unless you can point to your schedule, point to your calendar and say, ah, I wanted to do this, but I didn't get to do it. If there's nothing on your calendar, if you just have blank white space, you can't complain <laughs> because what did you get distracted from? So here's the thing. You have to turn your values into time. What are values? values are attributes of the person you want to become, okay? So we all talk a good game. So you'll, what are your values? Oh, the first thing I value is health. Health is very, very important. Okay, do you have time on your calendar? Have you turned your values into time by putting time for sleep, right? We all know how important sleep is. We've heard, we've read the books, we've heard the podcast. Sleep is important, we got it. Is it in your schedule, right? I, I, I'm a father of a 14-year-old and I used to yell at my daughter, you have to get to bed on time, you have a bedtime. But I was a hypocrite because I didn't have a bedtime right? We have to have bedtimes too. Uh, if physical health is important to you, do you have time for exercise? By the way, I'm not saying it has to be your value, but if that is one of your values, do you have time in your schedule for prayer, for meditation, for reading, for, for exercise, for the things that are important to take care of yourself? Then do you have time to live out your values as, a, as a, they are important to your relationships, right? If part of your value system is to, to be a, a loving spouse, a, a, a caring father, for, for example, is it on your calendar to be a good friend, Okay, you talk a good game, but do you have time to call your mom, to call your friends, to spend time with people you love? Is it in your schedule? Because you know what's going to happen. If you don't put that time in your schedule, it's not going to happen. And then finally, your work, 
okay, which is the last of these three life domains. But this is where people you know, most think about time management. The problem is that most people spend their entire day doing what's called reactive work. Reactive work is a kind of work that, that uh, we're doing reacting to things, right? Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to our boss calling us. That's reactive work. That's how most people spend most of their time. But indistractable people spend a, a, a time planned for reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, being creative, thinking for God's sakes can only be done without distraction. So indistractable people plan the time to do reflective work because if you don't, I promise you, you're gonna run real fast in the wrong direction because reflective work tells you what to do. People get very comfortable doing reflective work. Uh, I don't know what to do right now. Well, let me check email. Email will tell me. Uh, I don't know what to do right now. Uh, I'll go to that meeting. I'll go check a website. I'll go, go on Slack, right? They're constantly doing reactive work and they're not being thoughtful about how they want to spend their time and attention at work. And that's a huge mistake. So you've got to, you know, I'm, I'm going to be very controversial here. You've got to dump that to-do list. Most people use to-do lists and to-do lists happen to be one of the worst things for your personal productivity because people don't use to-do lists properly. They only do the first step, which is writing down what they want to do, but they never do the very important step of when are you going to do it? So they're stuck with this to-do list of a million things that make them feel like crap because there's no way they're going to finish it all. And so what this does, this tyranny of the to-do list, it reinforces this self-identity. We talked about how important identity is. You get home from work at the end of the day, you feel tired and you feel like you worked all day, you worked real hard. And here's this list of facts, of things you didn't accomplish all day, loser, right? And so what does that do to your psyche if day after day you don't do what you said you were gonna do, right? You're proving to yourself that you're no good at time management. Well, you're not broken. It's this stupid to-do list methodology that we've been taught that's a, that's a dumb technique. So time boxing is a much, much better technique. And by the way, it's supported by way more research. This is called making an implementation intention in the psychology literature. Turns out that's a much better technique. And the secret to it is that what, what you have to do is to stop measuring output. Okay, this is a really important point. People who use to-do lists on their own without sticking to a time box calendar, they measure themselves by how many cute little boxes they check off. Okay, right? That's what they get off on. Oh, look how many cute little boxes. I've actually worked with people who will write things down after they have done it on their to-do list so they can get the joy of checking it off. It's completely ridiculous, right? But measuring yourself based on output is stupid because you can't control output. You can only control input. Well, as a knowledge worker, what's your input? Just two things, time and attention. So I want you to stop measuring how much you get done. That's not the point. The point is... Did you work on what you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you were going to work on it without distraction? That's it. That's all you got to do. Did you work on what you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you would without distraction? And here's the kicker. We know that people who use that technique, who use a time box counter, even if it's 20 minutes, 15 minutes, what well, doesn't matter. When they work on that task without distraction, they actually finish more than the to-do list people. They actually get more done. Right, Because now they have a feedback system to say, okay, well, I worked on this task for 20 minutes. I got this much done. If I need to finish it, here's how I, I finish it. Whereas people who just leave stuff on their to-do list, they work on it for five minutes. They get a little bored. Those internal triggers start bubbling up. They do this for 10 minutes. They do that for five minutes. And they never work without distraction long enough to do the task well and just get the darn thing done. So that's step number two to becoming indistractable in a nutshell is making sure we make time for traction by turning our values into time. This is so, so important. I was listening to one guy I was talking to and he says, you know, whatever, whatever you put in the time slot, 
you'll you'll allocate that time according to whatever that project is. So if you give yourself eight hours, you'll take up the whole eight hours to figure out something to do during that time. And that's one of the things I found so interesting is like if you collapse that time frame and say, hey, I got to get this done in an hour because that's all I'm giving myself to do. Now, all of a sudden, you turn on that whole nother level that you didn't think you had inside of you. Again, associating that you know identity and limiting belief and destroying that and saying, I am able to do that in that lot of time. Now, I'd love to talk a little bit and work right around uh, reflective work. Because see, what I find this interesting, like you're mentioning, we become so distracted where we we, we think we're got to be busy all the time. Definitely when you're talking, when you're, because a lot of our listeners, they want to get that eight, nine figure. And so what I found so interesting is in order to scale, a lot of that reflective work isn't going out there being busy. A lot of times it's, hey, you know, sitting there, like you mentioned, asking yourself certain questions, maybe doing some activity, get your conscious mind away from it. So it allows your subconscious to kind of give you the answers or whatever it may be, whatever that looks like. But I want to ask you, Nir, um, how do you structure this time to make sure that it's the most effective? What does that look like for yourself uh, to make sure, well, if, if it's asking questions, if it's once a quarter, if it's once a year, what, what does that look like to make sure that you're optimizing at the most effective uh, period in your, in your time schedule? Yeah, so if I, if I understand your question correctly, it's how do you plan your, your time? No, not the reflective work specifically. What are you doing in that oh, period in the of time frame? Work time. In that period of time frame, whether it's asking yeah. questions, whether it's doing some sort of activity, get your conscious mind away, so as long as you're subconscious. Like, what are certain things that you're doing during that reflective period that yeah. may be structured the most effective way? So I, I use my reflective work time in, in two ways. One is to write. So it's very difficult to write long form anything or to think for, you know, I, I write in order to think that that's really how I, I think best is by writing things out. And I, I, I encourage everyone to try. It's amazing how, how you can, you know, before you hire a coach or a guru or buy some expensive workshop, just write it out for yourself. The answers tend to be in you, <laughs> or at least you'll get to the next an next question to ask. And if you really come up against a wall, sure, you know there's there's lots of resources out there. But you know, don't skip this step of writing things out. So I plan time to work uh, to do my reflective work time uh, primarily for writing. The other thing is for planning. So I have time in my schedule once a week where I make my time box calendar for the week ahead. And so that's another time. So anytime you, if you happen to be in uh, some kind of creative work, uh, you've got to set that that reflective work time uh, aside. If you need to strategize, uh, you've got to set that work uh, reflective work time. Any, any, you know, any of these tasks, and we we basically know what they are, right? Anything that you need to do uh, where your work output, your performance suffers when you are distracted, that's the kind of work you need to set time aside for. So during this time, you're not like asking yourself certain questions like, hey, how do I build this? What, what are the big high leverage activities that near you're the only one that can do in your business? Or hey, what, what big message do I want to deploy within the next year or 18 months? Or I'm just curious, like other, because see, in that time frame, you're obviously talking higher leverage activities that, you know, the big domino effect, really to get the, the whole thing rock and rolling. And like you mentioned, we can get distracted, but uh, do you have any other questions that you kind of um, ask yourself during that period of reflective? So, so once a month, I do have uh, this list of a few um, priorities for the, for the year. And so part of my reflective work time is to look through those various priorities, whether it's family, friends, financial, I have these, you know, few buckets that I look at in my reflective work time once a month 
to see how I'm doing uh, at the end of the month on each of those of those objectives. Uh, and then I'll change my weekly calendar if, if something needs to change. So if I have like, for example, a fitness goal that maybe I'm slipping on for one reason or another, okay, let me reassess. Maybe I'm not putting enough time into it, or maybe I'm putting too much time into it. And how can I change my calendar accordingly? Well, what we don't want to do, what we want to be careful of doing is uh, over-visualizing. A lot of folks will put too much effort into visualizing some kind of promised land future. And this can be actually dangerous. Uh, we know that visualizing, you know, that we, we used to, there used to be this kind of woo-woo stuff around vision boards and uh, planning your five-year uh, plan, you know, vision and all that. And it turns out this can actually be harmful. We know that when people uh, are told to envision themselves uh, with a beach body, if their goal is to learn lose weight, right? If they visualize, oh, you know, what am I going to look like when I lose weight? Or uh, what is it going to feel like to finally be wealthy and achieve, you know, financial independence? The visualizing part actually makes them more likely to, or, sorry, less likely to achieve their goals because, in a way, you're you're pre rewarding yourself with that good feeling, uh, and so it makes you less likely to actually do the work. The right kind of visualization is not to visualize the outcome, it's to visualize the process, namely to visualize and plan ahead of time what you will do when things get in your way. So for example, if you're dieting, don't visualize yourself with that beach body, that's not going to help you. Visualize what will happen when you're trying to cut calories and someone offers you a chocolate cake at a party. That's what you should visualize. If you're trying to, to, to uh, save money, right? Visualize what you will do when you feel that urge to splurge, okay? That's the right kind of visualization. This is so unorthodox and I love this, man. I love how you just approach these things because there's, you know, you, everybody says one thing and then all of a sudden you're coming over here and like, hey, no, this is actually what's what's happening. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I want to talk and a little bit about- I told you, there's so many things that I thought was true. And then when you look at the research, there's so much of it that's either not backed by any science at all or actually the exact opposite of what the science tells us. That's very sad. Now, let me ask you in regards to confidence. Uh, we talked a little bit about limiting beliefs and then identity as well. But one of the things I've discovered when, when I'm talking to a lot of these eight and nine figure entrepreneurs, there's this like in-depth, deep rooted confidence that they know they can become an eight, nine figure entrepreneur. Like maybe they don't have the visualization. Maybe they don't have the infrastructure. They don't know exactly how yet, or they haven't built that out, but they have this like deep root, like I know that I can. And so I'd love to get in regards to like, indistractable, right? I like what you're saying in regards to identity because you have to remove yourself. Hey, if I struggle with ADHD, I'll never be indistractable. That's just who I am, blah, blah, blah. Well, all of a sudden there's that confidence that I'll never be able to do X, Y, Z, right? Because I'm, you know, ABC. And so what would you say for those that are listening that maybe have, and again, it comes down to self-image a little bit in regards to confidence, but what would you suggest is the, the importance of confidence and the confidence, um, how does it play and uh, in, in this in this methodology. Yeah, so there, there's a sense of what we call a locus of control, this idea in psychology around what's called locus of control. And people who have an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control tend to be much more successful. So people who have an external locus of control believe the world happens to them. Okay, right. Uh, the reason I'm, I uh, got fired from that job was because uh, that that schmuck Linda didn't like me, right? <laughs> Not I was performing poorly on the job, right? So a person with an external locus of control, the world is affecting them and that's causing them to, to, to have the life they have. 
a person with an internal locus of control uh, believes that they have have agency, and that's really the key word here. It's agency, and that's that's something. Of course, I'm I'm a huge proponent of. Uh, it's not it's not just blind confidence because we know blind confidence can actually be harmful, right? If it can lead to people making very bad decisions if they believe, oh, everything I touch turns to gold. Uh, you you then you know lack rationality to make good decisions. So you're not infallible. You're you're human. You're mortal, just like everybody else. But you also want to realize what is in your control versus what is not in your control and what do you have agency over and what you do not have agency over. And I feel, you know, what you're absolutely right that entrepreneurs tend to have a very strong internal locus of control. They have a high degree of agency. They believe that what they do will succeed. They're optimistic, uh, not blindly optimistic, but they are in general very optimistic. Interesting. I love this. I love this conversation, man. I really just appreciate you being on and just unpacking this at a very high level. And I know that you go through at a much in-depth level uh, in your book, uh, Indistractable. Um, near, um, how can my audience reach out to you? Just be part of what you got going on. You got a lot of workshops and a lot of content available for those that are part of this, um, you know, purchase Indistractable or Hooked. So how can they reach out to you, bud? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually a free 83-page workbook that we couldn't fit in the final edition of the book. It got too big. Uh, so it's available complimentary at indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E.com, indistractable.com. Awesome. And guys, those links will be in the de description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing. And, you know, you're sitting there and you think, hey, you know what, I've got things rock and rolling. But you know what, there's always rooms to optimize. There's always rooms to say, hey, you know what, how do I make sure I'm escaping from that discomfort and the root of this distraction? Maybe you don't feel like you are fully distracted. Make sure you're reaching out and, and consume this content. And for those that are sitting there going, man, I definitely need this. I've tried every little positive habit thing, whatever, implement a little app that I can put on my phone to, you know, minimize that distraction. You're not getting to the root of it. And so, you know, make sure that you consume this content. And Nir, again, I really appreciate your time being on here. I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully, is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with our audience? Sure. You know, I think if you boil down my research of the past five years on Indistractable, it's, uh, it boils down to this mantra uh, that uh, uh, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Okay, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That so many of the, the bad decisions we make, the things that we, uh, we regret later on, uh, that, that on our deathbeds we say, oh, why didn't we do more of one thing or another? It tends to come down to impulse control. All right, that is a big part of, of good decision making, of having the kind of successful life you like, uh, you, you want, and staying away from distraction is controlling our impulses, whether it's our diet, whether it's exercise, whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, uh, the health of our business. Impulse control is a big, big deal. Uh, and so the, the, the solution, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, meaning that there is no distraction that can get you if you plan ahead, that if you wait to the last minute, if the cigarette is in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the uh, chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, of course, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning before you even say hello to your loved one. But if we plan ahead, right? There is no distraction that, that can get us because the, the way we become indistractable tomorrow is by planning and making, taking steps today. Such amazing, massive wisdom. Neri, I appreciate you being on here. Guys, that is the, my friend, the author, speaker, and investor, the one and only Nir AL. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Devon's podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. 
Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.